ladies and gentlemen, Cardinal fans of all ages, welcome to Chris and Coach Beyond the Box Score. I'm Chris Grace. I'll be your host, joined every week by current Wesleyan Athletic Director and former head football coach, Mike Whalen. Each week, Coach and I will interview some of your favorite former Cardinals and find out exactly what they've been up to. Without further ado, it's time to check in with the coach, Mike Whalen. Coach, once again, we've got a unique guest, but but we're taking a little different a, a little different turn this week. We're not talking football; we're talking football. We've got a guy who is the all-time leading scorer in Wesleyan soccer history, and he has made a career out of uh, dominating on the pitch, if you will. Class of '93, Amos McGee is with us tonight, and I am super pumped to talk with the all-time leading scorer in West Cardinal soccer history. Yeah, you know, I, I've actually never met Amos, so I'm excited to meet him and spend time with him. Uh, Coach Wheeler has, uh, speaks very, very highly of Amos, and, and uh, as does Coach Jackson. And, uh, you know, no great, great player at Wesleyan uh, Hall of Famer in the Wesleyan Hall of Fame, and uh, obviously has done some amazing things after leaving Wesleyan, both as a player, as a coach, and now as a general manager. So really looking forward to spending some time with him tonight. Yeah, Amos is the current director of player personnel with Minnesota United FC. They just had a breakthrough season in the MLS. They're in their third year um, as a major league soccer team. And we're going to talk to him all about kind of how he ended up in Minnesota, how he ended up at Wesleyan, and of course, you know, kind of some of his fun stops along the way, which include, you know, uh, lining up on the field with some of the great players in the history of world soccer, the likes of Risto Stoichkov and, and, and Carlos Valderrama. And we're going to touch on all that. You don't want to miss it. But more importantly, what you really don't want to miss is how you can stay connected with Chris and Coach beyond the box score. And there's only one person who can tell you how. That's right. He is the producer. He is the man behind the man, behind the man, behind the man. That's right. That's Mike O'Brien. He's with us now. Obi, how can they stay connected with Chris and Coach? Yeah, so you can follow Wesleyan Athletics on Twitter and Instagram at West underscore athletics, as well as Facebook at Wesleyan.athletics. You can also listen to the podcast on the Athletics website, the University SoundCloud channel, and Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to reach out to us with any comments or feedback, uh, you can email athletics at Wesleyan.edu. We'd love to hear from people out there, so please, you know, give us your feedback and, uh, if you haven't had an opportunity and this is your first podcast listening tonight, then uh, go check out the others because we've got a great library of great guests. And and uh, this has been just a, a, a lot of fun for me. And I know you feel the same way, Chris. Yeah, it's been awesome. And, and honestly, I'd love for you to reach out to me personally if you can at ChrisGrace82 on Twitter. If you can't, that's okay. You know, we want to hear from you. We want to know what you think. I've gotten some good feedback. I want more feedback. We've got awesome guests. We, you know, every one of our guests has taken time out of their busy schedule to kind of, you know, enlighten our lives and tell, you know, the West alums, you know, exactly what they've been up to and how they've gotten to where they have. And honestly, for a Division three, a small Division three school to have as many guests, we're talking now, we're into the eight, 17, 18 guests that are doing big things in the world of sports. It speaks to the university and it speaks to the heritage and it speaks to really the drive of the liberal arts education and the drive of the, of the West student, you know, because really it is remarkable. We're talking about a school with less than 3,000 students, and we've talked to some of the biggest and the best people around that have done things for the biggest and the best organizations around in all of the professional sports and the college sports world, Coach. So it's been great, and I look forward to more of this. With that said, it's time for our interview tonight. Class of 93, Wesley, an all-time leading scorer. He is Amos McGee. 
Welcome to another edition of Chris and Coach Beyond the Box Score, along with the coach Mike Whalen. Of course, the producer Mike O'Brien, Chris Grace with you in tonight. We welcome in another fantastic guest, class of 1993, Wesleyan all-time leading scorer on the pitch. Amos McGee is with us. He is the current director of player personnel for Minnesota United FC in the MLS. He has done all sorts of awesome things in the world of soccer. Amos, welcome to our podcast. Yeah, thanks very much, guys. Really excited to be here. We're Amos, excited we're, to guys. we're really excited to have you. I know uh, uh, you've been in touch with Coach Wheeler recently and, and uh, you know, did a, did a, a, a Zoom call with the team and and uh, so uh, I, I've been hearing great things, so I'm really excited to spend some time with you. Good. I will try not to disappoint. You know, it, uh, it's after 20 or 30 years away from Wesleyan, you, uh, you know, you, you remember the places uh, as fondly or more fondly than you ever did. Um, and so it's my pleasure to come and talk to you guys about what an amazing experience it was for me and, you know, kind of how it's affected my life in a professional world of sports. So. I think we got a lot to talk about tonight. Oh, man, I am so fired up, Amos. You know, Coach and I broadcast football games, but I watch a lot of football, so I'm fired up about this personally. Um, you know, what I first and foremost want to find out for all of our listeners is, how did you end up in Middletown? How did you become a Cardinal? So, it's, it's actually it's an interesting story. I was born in New Haven. My, uh, my parents worked at Yale. They're both scientists. We migrated west to Michigan State. Uh, I'm a big Big Ten basketball fan. Um, Michigan State, We, when I was a junior in high school, so I was a pretty good soccer player, nothing spectacular. Then we went to Minnesota, and uh, I, I went to high school with a program that was nothing short of remarkable. And, and you know, ended up having about eight players from within two years above me and two years below me from my high school who went on to play professional soccer. Um, my, my senior year of high school, I was uh, co-captain of the team, but two juniors, a guy named Tony Sana and a guy named Manny Lagos, were winning all the accolades, and deservedly so. Both those players went on to play in Major League Soccer. Both those players played for our national team. Tony Sana played in the Bundesliga and, you know, got voted to the top 11 in the 2002 World Cup. So we're talking elite of elite players. And I think I was a pesky all-conference as a senior in high school, which doesn't do you a lot of good when you're trying to get yourself recruited, um, you know, all the way on the other, you know, on either coast. So I, uh, you know, I went and visited Brandeis. I went and visited Wedland. I was desperate to get into Yale where my dad went, went to Dartmouth. And then some schools in the Midwest, University of Wisconsin-Madison, Northwestern, and, and Washington University in St. Louis. And because I didn't know that I could play Division One soccer and I wasn't highly recruited, I basically said, I'm, you know, I want to go to the school that fits and the school, the best, you know, the best academic school I could get into. And, uh, you know, I got waitlisted uh, at Yale, got waitlisted at Northwestern, got into all the other schools, uh, denied by Dartmouth, and then... Uh, got into Wesleyan and it was one of those college visits where you show up sunny, beautiful day. Everybody's out on Foss Hill. I think, you know, I think as I left campus, I said to my mom, this is where I'm going to school. So it was kind of love at first sight. And, 
you know, then I had to convince Coach Jackson, who was the longtime, you know, football, uh, sorry, soccer and lacrosse coach at Wesleyan, that I was a recruit worthy of, of getting invited into the preseason. So my high school coach made a couple of phone calls, and Coach Jackson ended up inviting me to preseason. And, you know, I think I started every game for four years. So I think it was a good decision by me and a good decision by him. So worked out well. <laughs> so you talk about you talk about Coach Jackson. You know, you were a part of some of, if not the best, Wesleyan men's soccer teams of all time. Um, you guys did some incredible things. Fifteen and one, fifteen and one season, winning the ECAC. Talk about you know kind of the development of the program during your time in Middletown and 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 you know some of your 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 best experiences as a Cardinal. Well, you know, I'll start with one of the biggest disappointments, and that was that we weren't allowed to go to the NCAA tournament at that time. Um, the ECAC schools, I think it was all ECAC schools, but particularly, well, I was known as Little Three or the NESCAC schools, but they said that the calendar, the, the NCAA tournament went too far into the calendar year and affected, you know, your academic uh, calendar, which, you know, I appreciated from a, one perspective, but was bitterly disappointed from the next. The year we went 15-1-1, which is my junior year, we were we were pretty dominant. Our one loss came to Division II Bryant College in, in Rhode Island. Um, you know, I think we tied. Our one tie was against Babson, who went on to the Final Four of the Division III NCAA uh, tournament. Um, so we were a really, really good team, scored a lot of goals. And so I think we were all pretty disappointed that, you know, we won an East AC championship on, um, on Lang Field. Sorry, not Langfield on Jackson Field, and uh, you know, and it was 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 spectacular in front of our home fans. But I think we wanted a little bit more. We felt we were in the in the mix to to compete for a national championship. However, I will say that you know, my four years there. I think my first year we were eight and six. Next year we we're like twelve and four, fifteen one and one, and then I think ten and six my my senior year. And my class has got to be one of the few classes that uh, has a winning record against Williams, or maybe we're 500 against Williams, um, winning record against Amherst, a couple of uh, little three championships, and an ECAC championship. So it was a pretty spectacular run of, of, for me, four years, but it extended beyond that. The program was in good shape when I left it with a lot of good players and a good mentality and a good culture. So, you know, and I think probably, uh, you know, had a down year here, down year there, but Coach Wheeler came in and, and, you know, built upon the culture that Coach Jackson had had established, and you know, primarily through our group that that sort of uh, late '80s, early '90s, where we started winning a lot at, at Wesleyan. So it was a it was a really fun time and a really good team with a lot of really good players, and and I was fortunate to to be a part of it. And and um, is there is there one particular game or you know one you know, one particular memory, you know, about those four years, whether it was from the, you know, the CAC championship year or maybe another year, you know, that really, really stuck out, whether it was a little three game, you know, what, what's one, one real memory you take away from, from playing on Jackson field and, and, uh, you know, playing, playing on the NESCAC. Well, I have a lot of memories. And one of the reasons we did is I think I was a quarter, maybe it was a half credit, short my senior year and I think I took a quarter credit ice skating class and then I did a quarter credit independent study with Coach Jackson 
and a teammate and I built a highlight tape from this is actually junior year. So I, you know, we spent a lot of time watching those games and going over it, but we, you know, we won the ECAC championship on uh, Jackson field against Williams um, two to one and the floppy rainy, perfect new England fall day and the fans stormed the field, you know, and you know, it, it, it was, it was sort of a quintessential college moment. I can't imagine that, even you go on and win a college cup at a division one level that you have that sense of satisfaction where, you know, your dorm, your, your dorm roommates, your classmates and your teammates are all celebrating in a, you know, in a muddy puddle in the middle of Jackson field. So, you know, I, I that's a hard memory. And listen, I've gone on and, and won a professional championship, um, you know, and played in an open cup final and, and done a lot of things at a professional level. And I'll say that, that win is, is as good as any I've ever had. So, you know, I think you're, you, you put the milepost in front of you, and if you can get there and knock it down, I don't, you know, it doesn't quite matter what level you're at. It matters how you do it, who you celebrate with, and we celebrated with a fantastic group of guys, you know, and with a, with a university that at that point, you know, wasn't winning a lot of championships. I think the pro, athletic program has really built up since I was there. But, you know, we were, we were starved for championships, at that point, but we certainly won a good one in front of our home fans. So it was a blast. And that's the memory that'll stick with me for sure. That's a great one. And, uh, you know, also for our listeners, some people maybe, maybe haven't been to campus. Um, you know, it's a pretty unique situation with, uh, you know, Andrews field and, and Jackson field kind of being smack in the middle of campus, you know, Jackson field kind of, you know, surrounded by academic buildings and, um, you know, I mean, it's something that just never gets old. I know, uh, you know, you know, I've, I had an opportunity to coach at a lot of different places, and and you know, since coming back to West and you know, coaching at West, coaching football at West and on Andrews Field, right smack in the middle of campus, and you know, you know, watching baseballs on baseball games from Foss Hill, or you know, whether it's you know, soccer or lacrosse over on Jackson Field. I mean, those venues are are as good as it gets for you know, just just the you know, the purity of the sports, you know, and having the opportunity to really like you said, engage with your classmates and, and, uh, you know, professors and you know, other members of the community. So really special. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, Northfield, uh, you know, Jackson field with the, with the fine arts, you know, uh, buildings around there, it's like you know, the, the sort of gray stone. It's a spectacular setting. And, and, uh, you know, look, I, I miss it. I miss it 30 years on. So, pretty spectacular. Well, everybody, you're listening to Chris and Coach Beyond the Box Score, along with the coach Mike Whalen, producer Mike O'Brien, Chris Grace with you. Tonight, we welcome in class of 1993, Amos McGee, current director of player personnel for Minnesota United FC of MLS fame. Uh, Amos, I've got tons of questions for you, but but first things first, I want to know, you know, you took you took a path you know, in the job that you currently have, it's probably not an atypical path, but for a Division three soccer player at a, a small school in, in New England to to become a, a professional soccer player, that's it's not very typical, especially for an American-born soccer player. So kind of tell our listeners, you know, how you ended up in the professional soccer ranks. Like, how, how did you decide when you left Wesleyan that you wanted to continue playing soccer and, and what kind of led you to, to your successful professional career? So it actually started at Wesleyan, and after my sophomore year, 
I, you know, I had a really good sophomore year. I think I had, you know, I think I scored 12 goals and I had a couple of assists and the team was good. And I had just come off of that summer of winning a youth national championship with my youth club in Minnesota. Um, so, so, and I had re- started to realize that I was getting to be a pretty good soccer player. And so spring semester, my sophomore year, I, I took and went to university of Wisconsin which is a good Division One program, Big Ten. Um, and I spent the semester um, training with the, with the varsity team. And at the end of my time there, the coaching staff brought me in and offered me a scholarship to, to transfer. And I filled out all the, tra- the, the transfer paperwork, and I thought a little bit about it uh, at my desk in Madison and, and decided I was getting way more out of school at Wesleyan. I thought I could continue developing as a soccer player there. So I kind of ripped up the transfer paperwork, called the coaches, said I'm going to go back to Wesleyan, and and uh, never looked back. Now, each summer I would go back to Minnesota and play on the semi-pro team, which developed into the Minnesota Thunder, which you know ended up developing into Minnesota United. And so my development as a soccer player was sort of two was sort of twofold or two pronged. One, I was at Wesleyan, where I was kind of the main focal point of the attack. Um, you know, scored a lot of goals, a lot of pressure on me, man marked most of the most every game. And then I would play for the Minnesota Thunder um, as a role player where I had to fit in. I had to sort of, uh, you know, be the second fiddle or third fiddle or eighth fiddle on a team. In fact, I made my professional debut with the Minnesota Thunder as a fullback, as a right fullback, which, uh, you know, anybody knows the way I played defense was a, was, <laughs> was a, a big step for the coach. But so, so I was getting a, a really good developmental path um, at Wesleyan and, and doing what I did during the summer. I was really committed uh, as a student and an athlete, uh, working on my body, trying to stay fit, played as much uh, rec and men's league soccer as I could up and down the uh, up and down Connecticut. And then I decided after uh, you know after I graduated from Wesleyan that I was going to put a summer and probably a full year into trying to to, to make it work. I made the uh, Maccabee team, which was the Jewish Olympic team. I went to Israel. A couple of coaches in Israel saw me. They wanted to sign me. Then I came back and went on a tour of France with the Minnesota Thunder. I flew from Paris to Tel Aviv, tried out for a team there. Uh, it was too late in the season. They had all their foreign spots filled. But a coach in France had seen me on that tour, so I flew back to France and signed my first professional contract in France. So played there for a year, and then I came back, and the Minnesota Thunder at that point was a fully professional team. And so I started there. MLS came along in 1996. Um, I eventually got drafted in 1998 by LA Galaxy, um, who was captained at that point by, funny enough, a Williams grad, a guy named Dan Kalichman, who was a four-time, I think, All-American at Williams and preceded me by uh, four years. So he had gone to Japan, um, and he and I spent a lot of time in preseason together. I ended up getting cut by the Galaxy, but Dan and I uh, still remain friends to this day. Dan's been an assistant coach with Toronto FC in Major League Soccer, and now he's just joined the LA Galaxy as an assistant coach as well. So the little uh, the little three um, minds tie pretty tightly, and uh, even though they are you know we're arch rivals with William, Dan and I have kept up a really good friendship, and and he's been a a really good sounding board and for me and vice versa. So 
um, all this time I just kept developing and I kept, you know, figuring I was going to outwork everybody the way I figured I had done at Wesleyan as a division three athlete. And, you know, I just kept progressing to the point where, you know, I ended up signing in Tampa Bay with the Tampa Bay mutiny of major league soccer and then went on to the Chicago fire major league soccer as well before I ended my career back in Minnesota. So it was kind of a winding journey at those before MLS started, you know, you had to make it work professionally in our country by playing outdoor for six, seven months of the year and playing indoor. There's a vibrant professional indoor league. So I bounced back and forth playing outdoor and indoor for basically 12 months a year for a couple of years until Major League Soccer came along, MLS came along, and you could actually make a living playing for one team. So it was uh, it was quite a journey. Yeah, so Amos, you know, I, I remember, you know, I, I was I was very involved in in soccer at at that time. I was, you know, a thirteen year old that was playing on five or six different teams, and 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 I remember when after we hosted the World Cup when MLS was debuting, um, and we actually had a local USL team here in, in Connecticut at that time, and I remember thinking, man, this is the greatest thing ever. But for an American who was in the mix, it must have been, you know, tenfold because. You go from from literally people looking at you and saying, "Well, what's soccer?" If you weren't a foreigner, or, you know, two Americans, they really didn't appreciate it the same way as they did other sports. To providing some legitimacy, I mean, you're playing in big stadiums and you're working your way up through all that. You, you know, you're talking about playing in an indoor league to try to be able to balance your your ability to to financially survive. So, you know, to be kind of at the start of that must have been must have been pretty exciting to see where it is now to to still be a part of it. Must have been pretty exciting to be at the beginning of the journey and see where the MLS is now. I imagine that that was pretty fun for you and, and, and pretty pretty interesting. It, it is, and you know, I mean, again, if you if you think back to where I started, where you know I was coming out of high school, a pretty good soccer player, but not particularly recruited or wanted by by any real you know big time soccer program. To you know, I, I always had a chip on my shoulder, and I always had, always had a humility. To, to what I, you know, how I approached everything, you know, and so you're right. It was a lot of crappy, uh, you know, bus or even van trips uh, across the Midwest for me. It was, you know, getting up in the morning, getting a run in the morning, then coaching camp all day, then going and training at night. You know, I spent a bunch of years doing that. Um, you know, so when MLS came along, but the funny thing is MLS right now is a really, really professional league. Like, you know, I spend, you know, pre-pandemic, I'm on the road in Europe and South America, you know, looking at, at players, identifying players for, for Minnesota United, and our facilities are better than most of the clubs that I see. Our stadium is as good or better than most clubs that you see in Europe. Maybe not as big as, as some of them, but certainly the amenities are as nice or nicer. Um, so it is a really professional league and a really good facilities and really well respected um, by players who, who have played all over. But when it started, you know, I remember in Tampa, we were still dressing out of trailers. Um, you know, we were still sharing uh, Raymond James Stadium with the uh, with Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and we were, you know, certainly the uh, the poor stepchildren of that relationship. So, um, you know, now uh, Tampa, as a uh, as a USL, as a second division franchise, has their own stadium, which is a great facility, and uh, you know, in Louisville. One of the perennially best teams in the second division has a brand new, you know, thirty million dollars stadium. So even second division clubs are surpassing the quality and of facilities and professionalism than we had when when MLS started back in nineteen ninety six. 
Now, we also played, you know, there were players who came over who had just started in a World Cup in 1994. I mean, I, I tell a story that I played on Tampa for a year and a half with, with a guy named Carlos Valderrama, who yep. was iconic hair and one of the best one of the best midfielders ever to play the game. And then I left and went to Chicago and played with Risto Stoichkov, who was, you know, the you know the Ballon d'Or winner in, in Europe for Barcelona um, a year later. So, you know, I didn't unfortunately play enough with those guys. I was sort of right at the bench. But, um, you know, to go from, from you know, playing with, uh, you know, guys who I, I love, Teddy Brubaker from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, at, you know, at Wesleyan, who was a fantastic player, but then, a couple of years later, you're playing with Risto Stoichkov and Carlos Valderrama. It was, you know, if I got ahead of myself, I would have, I would have failed miserably. I was humble and 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 appreciative of everything that I had, and kept trying to keep chasing it. And you know, I, it's what I tell kids when I talk to them and and do some mentoring is, you know, don't be satisfied. Enjoy, you know, when you get to a milepost, but then keep keep pushing because uh, because once you stop, it, it tends to stop. So, Amos, I guess my question for you is, you know, being in the center of it, you know, we host a World Cup in 1994, and really from that point forward, soccer has been respected on a different level here in the United States. You talk about the MLS launch, they did a great job of bringing in guys like Stoichkov, guys like Donadoni, guys like, you know, guys like Valderrama, but then it kind of, the MLS kind of stalled a little bit, and it took a little while for it to, to figure out, okay, well, maybe you know, bringing in guys that are a little bit over the hill but have huge names that are great players. And then they've kind you know, the league as a whole has found their footing to be a great league now. It's still undervalued, you know, around the globe. But but you've got guys that are, you know, guys like Giovinco that come in in their prime, you know, guys like that. Um, talk about kind of during your time from when you were, you know, with the fire and, and with the mutiny to now how the MLS has evolved as a league. And, and how it's it's really turned gone from, you know, a place where, you know, maybe some aging European stars come to get collect a paycheck to where, you you know, you're seeing some great competition and some great players, you know, in the prime of their career. Yeah, it's it, it's been remarkable. And, and I would say that, you know, to finish my timeline a little bit, after I finished playing in Chicago, back to Minnesota, I became a player assistant coach then an assistant coach, then a head coach in Minnesota. Then I left to Portland and was an assistant coach at the Portland Timbers as they transitioned from uh, UFL second division to major league soccer in 2011. Um, And then from Portland, I went to DC to DC United and was an assistant coach in DC United and then came back home to Minnesota and and joined Minnesota United in 2017. So it's been uh, I would say from when we entered the league in 2011 with Portland to where the league is now, even in that less than 10 years, that growth or about 10 years, that growth has been absolutely remarkable. So back then you couldn't compete for guys like Giovinco. You couldn't go get, and we've got a number 10 that we, you know, we signed from Boca juniors, a guy named Emmanuel Reynoso, who was a starting attacking midfielder for uh, Boca juniors one of the top two or three best clubs mm-hmm. in, in all of South America, one of the yep. top clubs in the world, playing, wearing the same jersey as, you know, Diego Maradona. Right. So the fact that we got him at 25 is nothing short of remarkable because even in 2011, you couldn't do that. Now, Portland changed. My last year in Portland was 2013, and we changed a little bit of the 
you know, of the way teams were spending money and pursuing players when we signed a guy named Diego Valeri, who was a 26-year-old at Lanouche. Nobody here in the United States had really heard of him. He was a top player. He had gone to Porto, and, and Portugal failed there, came back to Argentina, had a good year at Lanouche, and then Portland signed him, and he went on to win a league MVP, led uh, Portland to a championship, uh, MLS championship, I think, in 2015, to the final in 2017 or 18. So um, he's – and now teams are pursuing players 25, 26, 27. The, the sport's established enough in our country. Our fans are knowledgeable enough. We don't have to go out and get a Donadoni to sell tickets. We can go out and get a Reynoso or a Valeri, and uh, people want to come because these are spectacular players even if they don't, you know, they're not uh, in a World Cup or they haven't played on TV in front of, you know, on a, you know, on a ESPN Champions League uh, broadcast. So the league's changed a lot. When It's almost unrecognizable to when I was a player. Um, but again, since I joined the league with Portland, um, even now the players and the money that we're spending in Minnesota, which is not one of the top spending teams in the league, but you know where we are compared to where we were in in, in Portland in 2011 is is again a huge difference, a huge uh, gap in in quality and resources and money spent and and frankly expectation of fans and and ownership. So it's been quite a quite an evolution over 25 years for sure. So, Amos, you know um, your role as a the general manager, you, you you know, you mentioned your coaching situation, being both a head coach and assistant coach, and 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 now as a general manager. Uh, explain to our listeners in terms of are you is there is there you know talk about your role in day to day and um, you know in addition to talent evaluation and recruiting. There's some a little bit. I think there, you mentioned there was a coaching component, and you know it's 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 not your what I think you know folks that aren't that familiar with soccer would think about you know the role of a GM. Um, you know, when you think about Major League Baseball or, you know, whether it's football, you know, the NFL, you know, just, just kind of give our viewers some in, some insight to, to what your what your day to day is like. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I have had ex- I did have experience. I just mentioned, uh, you know, going from uh, USL to MLS. So going from the second division to a first division in Portland. Um, so one of the reasons I was hired back in Minnesota is because. I was starting to do a lot of the scouting and player acquisition, uh, starting to dip my toe into that in D.C. while I was an assistant coach. Um, and, you know, I, I obviously have a lot of friends and, and colleagues in Minnesota, um, you know, so I interviewed here and um, and was able to, to, to fit into this role of director of player personnel. And I was working sort of hand-in-hand with the head coach and the director of uh, the – um, the chief soccer officer at that point, or what was the sporting director, a guy named Manny Lagos, who I mentioned earlier. So, so Manny and I kind of helped build the the roster over this first three or four years mm-hmm. with the you know with with the head coach. Now Manny has gone to become a chief soccer officer, and we have a technical director that I work with doing the same thing. So, basically, what we're doing is we're we're working on trying to. Uh, you know, basically identify talent um, for the first team. So now that that's a reasonably straightforward proposition, but when it comes to our league, we have a, a hard salary cap. 
But within that salary cap, there are different designations that allow different clubs to spend more or less money. So, so while our salary cap is just over $4 million, you do have three designated players that you can spend as much money as you want on them, and they fit in as a max salary, which is uh, around $600,000 on your salary cap. But you could, you know, spend eight, nine, ten million dollars if you want on those players. But they'll only count uh, what they count on the salary cap. And then you have uh, a new designation which came in about three or four years ago, which is a, a player which is they realized MLS realized that they had a lot of American players sort of at the bottom of the salary, and they had some designated players at the top of the salary. And the quality of the league was struggling because there weren't players in between. So they created another mechanism. Again, I'm getting long-winded here, but but called targeted allocation money. And so with all these different designations and money to spend, you know, you, you have to take on a pretty, uh, not a fiduciary responsibility, but, you know, luckily my wife's a PhD in economics. So when I get uh, stuck on a question, I ask her. When I get stuck on math, she helps me out. But, you know, I'm trying to fit players in, to fit players into certain roster designations certain salary cap designations all while also managing a, a scouting department um, and uh, and also doing some of the scouting myself. Now we've also had sort of a start stop uh, proposition with our with our academy um, so I've been trying to help build that out as well and get that to the point where uh, you know we can get the best young players in Minnesota eventually to our first team um, and then uh, the first three years were spent pretty intensely trying to build out a strategic plan that would allow us to be successful moving forward. So along with the sporting director, I was able to do that. And, you know, uh, within that context, I think we've set ourselves up for some long-term sustainable success. So, I mean, it's a lot, but I have to tell you, I get, I get excited before I go to work every day. I mean, it, it, you know, working in this sport, which I love so much and being able to do a lot of these uh, pieces, which I love so much, which is watching games and watching players and talking to these players and trying to convince them that Minnesota is a great place to be. You know, all of that is, is, is work that I really, really enjoy. So I feel quite fortunate. So Amos, you know, what I, what I've taken from the MLS over the last few years is, you know, I'm a guy who follows soccer all around the world. I follow it in Europe. But, you know, there are great communities within the MLS that provide just an amazing amount of support. And Minnesota seemed, you know, right away, the fan base, probably because what you guys had built with the Thunder and that there was already the roots there, I'm guessing. But, uh, you know, you guys immediately came into the league with a, with a tremendous fan base. Talk about kind of, you know, the whole Wonder Wall and, you know, kind of, you know, how, how the Minis- you know, the, the, the Twin Cities have supported a brand new MLS franchise in a place that you might not think soccer right away when you think about Minnesota. Obviously, it's cold. Um, you know, it's a great hockey area um, who also has a professional football team there in the NFL. Talk about kind of how they've embraced, you know, the MLS and how they've embraced Minnesota United. Yeah, I mean, one thing people don't realize is, is you know Minnesota, Minneapolis, St. Paul, um, you know, founded by Lutheran Scandinavians. So mm-hmm. you know we are a reasonably white Scandinavian community. But because Lutheran Church does so much refugee outreach, we've uh, we've gotten a lot more diverse over the last you know 20, 30 years. So in fact, 
Minneapolis next to New York City is the most linguistically diverse city in the United States. So the huge population of, of East Asians, um, some Hmong, Vietnamese, Laotian uh, refugees, um, and then Ethiopia, Eritrea. Um, we've got a big East African population here. So it's a pretty diverse, multicultural uh, city. Our metropolitan area, the Twin Cities, St. Paul and Minneapolis. So we, we had, we've had really long-standing minor league professional soccer here since the Thunder, um, which has built up uh, to Minnesota United. And um, so there was that. There is a, a, a level of diversity in the city. And we, um, you know, we are, you know, our organization did a great job of sort of building out anticipation and excitement about that. And then the fans really embraced it. I mean, we have five major sports here. We have the Timberwolves, the Vikings, the, um, you know, the Wild, the Twins. Um, and so, and we have the University of Minnesota. So we have Big Ten sports here as well. So it's a, it's a pretty crowded sports market. And with that said, we, um, you know, we found a little niche, which is what soccer, I think, has really found in the United States and in MLS, which is, you know, the supporter culture is part of the entertainment. The Wonder Wall is part of the entertainment. People go to our stadium now, uh, Allianz Field, our new stadium, our new you know, $250 million stadium that sits right in between St. Paul and Minneapolis, and they'll, they'll come out of there and call me and say, I can't believe what I just witnessed because, in fact, the, chan the fans are chanting the entire game, and it's in concert, and it's, and it's in, uh, in unison, and it's done with a little tongue-in-cheek, and it's loud, and then... When we win games, the entire fan base stays. 20,000 people stay and stand and hold their scarves up and sing Wonderwall, the Oasis song, you know, stemming from a tradition of a minor league soccer uh, of the, you know, of Minnesota Thunder, where assistant coach sang it with the players in the locker room after a big win. So it's got some authenticity. It's got some cachet to it. And, uh, you know, in the team, you know, we weren't particularly good our first two years. We spent all our money on our stadium and not really on our roster. Um, and then in, since year three, year three and year four, we've been you know, one of the top teams in Major League Soccer. And our fan base and our stadium, you know, we have a pretty enviable, enviable situation here in that we have, I think, the best stadium in the, in the league. We've got a great fan base. We already have some great traditions, and we have a good team. So, you know, if you can brave the occasional March snowstorm to come to a match or the October freeze to – to see a playoff game, if that's okay with you, you're going to be a lifelong fan of us, I think. So just just one more thing, Amos. You know, so, some people don't understand how the MLS salary structure and everything works. What is the balance for you in terms of, um, you know, with the designated player situation, basically you get, you know, you, you get one or two chances at this, and if you get it wrong, it can set you back. So how much time are you guys putting into – um, balancing your academy with, you know, trying to really, you know, shoot everything you've got into like hammering the perfect designated player. So, it, I mean, listen, we've got some criticism for the fact that our academy, you know, our rollout on our academy has been pretty stilted. And so, it's a, to be honest, it's a fair criticism. We are, we did, like I've just mentioned, we did not spend a lot of money on our roster the first two years of the organization because, again, we are privately financing a $250 million stadium. So 
you know, our, we have a great ownership group. I think there's 16 uh, families all based in Minnesota, including Glenn Taylor, who owns the Timberwolves, and the Polads, who own the Twins. They're, you know, some knowledgeable and professional sports. So they're part of our ownership group. CEO of United Health Group. So um, we got a great ownership group, but again, they put a ton of money into uh, into the stadium. Um, finally, you know, we, you know, frankly, all of our jobs were basically on the line in between year two and year three, as we came off two pretty poor, uh, pretty poor, two poor uh, seasons in Major League Soccer. We had five starters that we needed to bring in, um, you know, and 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 you know, I, I would say. Uh, we did a fantastic job of that. We got a goalkeeper who's now starting at Monaco, who was the goalkeeper of the year, a guy named Vito Manoni. Um, we got a center back, Eichel Parra, who was the defender of the year. We got a right back from France, guy Metanier, Roman Metanier, who was an all-star. We got one of the best players ever to play in Major League Soccer at the end of his career, a guy named Ozzy Alonso, who came from Seattle and has made the playoffs every year of his 12-year career in Major League Soccer. And then we got a, a, a player from Copenhagen in, in Denmark, a Slovakian international named Jan Gregor. So we went out. We had to get five starters. We got five starters. All of them have been home runs. So, you know, can I say that before it was all going to work out? No, because Ike Opara and Ozzy Alonso have been a little bit injury prone. You know, we got with our medical staff and said, can we keep these guys healthy, healthy over a 34-game schedule? They assured us we could, and we did. You know, the goalkeeper hadn't played much in a couple of years. We had to go back and scout him a lot off of, you know, 2016 games, you know, uh, games in 2016. We got that right. And then, you know, you get to get six foot three inch Slovakian playing in Denmark for one of the top teams and he's rotating and you can't be sure if he's going to turn into one of the top, you know, box to box midfielders in the league. And he did so. You know, a little bit slack, but, you know, you make your own luck and, and you put in the hours and the work to get these guys right. And we did that. Now, the money and the time and the energy was spent to make sure that we got our first team right and built it down from that way, as opposed to some teams that have spent the money and the energy on their academy and built it up that way. And now we've got to go back and sort of rejigger what we're doing with our youth, you know, and our academy and the players in Minnesota. And we got to get that right, too. So that's the next challenge. Um, for this club and it's keeping us competitive, competing, uh, competing for championships and then getting our academy right so we can start you know, graduating uh, the next player from Minnesota onto our first team. So a lot of work still to do here. Wow, that's, uh, that's amazing. And, uh, you know, I think, I think just listening to that, you know, I think, you, you, you know, you, you probably just work best under pressure. You know, you, you needed to, uh, you know, have those two bad years to start off with for yourself put yourself under the gun a little bit, get a little pressure on you, and then go out and hit four, five home runs, bring five home run players in, and, and, and off you go, right? Yeah, I would say working <laughs> well. I would say working well under pressure. You should talk to some of your professors that had me at Wesleyan. I'm not sure that was my, I'm not we'll sure that was my uh, scouting report back when I was there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but my question is, you know, you know, just in terms of, you know, the, the whole – um, NESCAC. I think I think our our viewers would be curious to hear, you know, your uh, impressions of NESCAC soccer since you know I mean, you know, since they, they've they've begun going to the NCAA's, it's it's been you know ridiculous in terms of, not just in soccer but in a lot of different sports, you know how competitive the NESCACs have been and certainly 
in soccer, you know, you know, Tufts and Amherst and, you know, Middlebury and, you know, Williams and, uh, you know, Wesleyan had a good run there for a while. Uh, you know, so there's been a lot of really, uh, you know, uh, high level soccer being played in the NESCAC and just curious in terms of, have you had an opportunity to, to, to see any of it and what your thoughts are? Yeah. So I, I got back in the mix a little bit a couple of years ago. I, when I was coaching at DC United, I took a youth team from Arlington, Virginia, and it was a, it was a good team. And, you know, we added a couple of sprinkled in a couple of players and ended up being a great team. And so we ended up going to the national tournament twice with the U 17s and U 18 team in Arlington. Um, we ended up losing in the final the first year and losing in the semifinal the second year. So it was an outstanding team. I think 16 of the 20 players went on to play college soccer. Ten of them played Division One college soccer. But, you know, we had a kid go to Amherst, kid go to Tufts, um, kid go to um, Case Western, okay, kid go to University of Chicago. Um, and so so we had we had some very, very good players. And what struck me is uh, I would take some of my best players some of the best players I'd be talking to college coaches and they'd be recruited by division one programs. And I'd see some NESCAC coaches coach at Tufts when they were winning championships and he wouldn't even be recruiting these kids. He didn't think they would be able to make his program. So here you have a division three coach who's not recruiting players. that division one coaches are recruiting. Now, listen, everybody, every coach <clears throat> sees things differently. I'm not saying that that's a validity so there's a validity and a, and a declaration of quality on a player because one coach likes him and one coach doesn't. What I'm telling you is that the, the NESCAC schools, which are regularly competing for national championships, were regularly competing for top youth soccer players to get into their program. And, you know, and so here I sent two or three of my best players, uh, two or three of the best players on that team, went to, went to Amherst, went to University of Chicago, um, and went to uh, went to Tufts. So you know, as well as going to George Mason, as well as going to Virginia Tech, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it, it was, you know, it, it was a real eye opener for me because I've been in touch, um, you know, regularly, although not um, not as much as I'd like, with Coach Wheeler. I actually knew him from my my freshman year roommate. Uh, my roommate from freshman year, still one of my very best friends, was a high school teammate of his out in Portland. So I've known Jeff since uh, since freshman year. Uh, I think you guys have, uh, you know, one of the best coaches in Division Three soccer, um, you know, and, and you probably take him for granted because he's been there long enough, but he shouldn't because when I, you know, when I'm out uh, at these tournaments and I'm seeing him there and we get talking soccer, you know, it's remarkable the depth of knowledge that he has. And so um, – you know, you have guys like that who are staying at at, uh, at a place like Wesleyan. You know, and Coach Jackson was a great coach. He was a great manager. Coach Jackson also coached lacrosse and soccer. So, he just you know, he just didn't have the levels of concentration or levels of focus that a guy like Coach Wheeler has. Um, you know, he did it remarkably well to the point where, you know, he coached uh, Bill Belichick. He coached uh, me and... Um, you know, I'd like to put myself in that same realm with Coach Belichick, but I, of course, can't. But, but, uh, but Coach Jackson, but Coach Jackson, you know, listen, he, he he did a remarkable job at two different sports. That's not the case so much anymore. Now you have a guy like, uh, you know, like Coach Wheeler, who's, 
you know, would be sought after by any Division One program or any professional team um, in some capacity. So a lot's changed since since we were there. Um, but, uh, you know, still we had we had remarkable players that, uh, you know, that found a way over, you know, certainly my four years there to build something pretty special um, that, you know, all of us still, still occasionally get on a, certainly a Zoom call when this pandemic hit, but on the text chain and, and you know, and shoot the breeze on this. So, you know, I, I'm impressed with NESCAC soccer. I'm impressed with Division Three soccer, um, you know, and uh, I'm sure I will continue to be. You know, there's a there's a player, the goalkeeper from Conn College, who's uh, a nominated player for the draft, which the MLS Super Draft, which uh, you know, will 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 uh, <laughs> will make those selections this Thursday afternoon. So, you know, I just got out of a, a draft prep um, a meeting uh, to get on this phone call, and we'll get back into it tomorrow. But you know, funny to see a Conn College goalkeeper who actually had a, I had a chance to see, and he's quite a good goalkeeper. And will um, my guess is he'll get drafted. So wow. says a lot about says a lot about where you know where NESCAC has come. Yeah, Amos, you know I I, I call um, some Division One soccer, Division Two soccer, Division Three soccer. There are some great players in the NESCAC. That's for sure. Um, you know, at the likes of, of of Amherst. You know, at at the likes of Con College. I've seen the goal the goal you're talking about. He's fantastic and and. You know, there's some hidden gems here. There's some guys, probably a lot like with the decisions you made, that choose to, you know, say I'm gonna I'm gonna play high high level sports while also getting a first level education. So, the reason I bring this up is talk about your experience at Wesleyan, the liberal arts experience, and how that kind of prepared for you. You know, the rest of your entire career, like the things that you took from your time in Middletown and how you've used them, you know, in the front office, how you've used them from a coaching perspective and how you've taken it with you as a player trying to make your way as a professional soccer player. Yeah. So I, I mean, I touched on some of it a little bit before the, the chip on the shoulder, the humility, the ability to adapt to, to circumstances. Um, all of that certainly in spades, you know, I've, I've applied to my career. I'll go back a little bit to that that time when I was at Madison at Wisconsin, sort of sitting at my desk looking over this this transfer request. Um, and you know, here I was at a school of fifty thousand people, and Madison is an absolutely fantastic school. It is one of the brightest, best people. You know, come from that school. Soccer program ended up winning a national championship, Division One national championship. I think three years after I was there. So um, I have nothing but good things to say about Madison, but. Here you have a school of 50,000 people, and I would get up in the morning, I'd go to class, I'd come back, I'd ride my bike to practice, I'd practice, I'd go home. Occasionally on the weekend, I'd go out. Who did I go out with? I went out with soccer players because you got to find some community in a big, big place like that. You know, so that's what I did. So as I was thinking about it, meanwhile at Wesleyan, I was in, you know, I was in three musicals, I was in a gospel choir. I was, you know, a medieval European history major. I was taking East Asian studies. Um, you know, I thought to myself, here I have a school of 2,600 that fits, that is so much, so much broader and so much more open than a school of 50,000 people. Now, the pro, you know, you can go to Madison and sort of almost get pre-professional in theater and go on and, you know, go straight from Madison to New York and start an off-Broadway show. I'm not claiming that. I'm saying for me who wanted to do a lot of different things besides just soccer, 
I could do those things at Wesleyan, and I, which I couldn't do at Madison. In fact, when you're in a, a musical, you're doing Godspell at the, you know, what is it, the 93 Theater? Um, you know, you're, you're doing these shows, you're meeting people who are so much different than your soccer teammates. You're meeting people that are so much different than, you know, a Minnesota kid who, who you know, went to a private school for a couple of years in Minnesota. So I just, and what that did is that it made me want to pursue that type of diversity and not just take it for granted that if you have the numbers, you're going to have the diversity. In fact, what you need is you need to find a situation that, that challenges you to be, to go out and do something a little bit different than you normally want to do. You know, I went to, to France and, uh, you know, played soccer in France for a year and, you know, taught myself French. So, you know, and, and, and figured that out. Like that, that type of sort of sense of adventure and sense of wanting to broaden your horizons. Uh, I had a little bit of that, but you know, it kicked into extra gear at Wesleyan and, you know, I, you know, I meet with kids all the time, like I said before, and talk about, you know, goal setting and talk about trying to get where they want to get in soccer or in other sports. But I do, you know, I also do a lot with, with, with kids looking at, you know, college recruitment process. I just met with a, a very good goalkeeper here a couple of weeks ago and spent a lot of time talking to him about you should be looking at Division three schools just as much as you're looking at Division one schools because I think you'll get as much or more out of it. Um, you know, for a couple people, like playing at the top program, that's what they need. But for the rest of us, you know, playing at a really good program with good people and good academics and a broad school where you can challenge yourself in a lot of different ways, you know, that was a ticket for me. And, and you know, I certainly have, have never regretted it since, since I made that decision. Twice. I made the decision twice to go to Wisconsin. <laughs> Amos, that's, that's awesome, you know. Neither coach nor myself knew about the the Wisconsin opportunity that you had, which just you know, it's going to make you you know even a bigger fan to to all the Wesleyan, all the Wesleyan fans and, and alums out there. Um, we do something at the end of every show, which is called the Gauntlet, and we're going to get there in a second. But before, I have to ask you a question. It's a little bit of a fanboy moment, so I need to know this. Growing up, um, you know, Risto Stoichkov was was my guy, um, but. I was also enamored by Valderrama, and and you also you know you you were around guys like Novak. So what I want to know is, full disclosure, who is the best all around footballer you've ever been around at any point in your life? And that could be in the same room, that could be on the field. I don't care. Tell me who is the greatest all around footballer you've ever been in the same this the same presence you know with. So besides Pete Doolittle. Class of '92, Wesleyan University. Besides Pete, <laughs> besides Pete, yeah. Because okay, all right. Because you just ask Pete, he'll tell you. No. Um, <laughs> so I actually, you know, talk about being humble. I do have to tell you this this funny little anecdote, and that is, so I spoke, I, you know, I spoke French. Valderrama played for a year and a half, I think, in Montpellier in France. So he speaks French. I don't know if he's ever even learned English, but I was one of the few guys who could communicate with him because I would speak French and he would speak French. So we got along really well. But my two years in Tampa, he called me M.A. Uh, you know, I don't know whether he couldn't pronounce S's, but, you know, so I still have teammates from Tampa who call me M.A. And then I went to Chicago and Stoichkov was sort of in and out and all around. And the same with me. I was going on loan when I wasn't playing, et cetera. And he called me number six. 
I played with two of the greatest midfielders in the history of world soccer, and neither of them knew my name. <laughs> <laughs> so, lest, lest we get too high and uh, mighty with ourselves, let's always remember that. Um, listen, I, I was the head coach of Minnesota, and we played the Galaxy, and it was the first game David Beckham ever played for the Galaxy. So, um, you know, so that was a thrill for me. Uh, I got to spend a little time with him. Um, my favorite player in the history of Major League Soccer is a defensive midfielder for Portland called Diego Chara. Now, nobody would say he's the greatest player in the world. No one would say he's even close to Valderrama or Stoichkov. But this guy was, you know, for me, has been one of the best players in, in, in MLS. Um, you know, in uh, you know, in, in in played against DC when they had Marco Echeverri, who had. Mm-hmm. You know, started for Bolivia and took Bolivia to a World Cup when they rarely qualify. Um, but you know, going on these recruiting trips, you know, I've 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 gone and you know and sat down with Thierry Henry and and gone and and sat across from um, you know Juan Ramon Riquelme down in Argentina. Yeah. So you know, it's been really really fun because I had a little fanboy in me too, of course, and you know uh, that's that's abated a little bit um, since, you know, since I've got into this, but uh, you know, I still am in awe watching some of our athletes compete day in and day out, see some of these players who come in and, and what they can do. Um, you know, listen, it, it's our leagues in a really good spot and there's really exciting players to, to, to watch. So, you know, for those of your viewers and listeners who don't, uh, don't regularly get out to watch games, you got to do it. You got to do it. It's, so important to the sport to support our sport in the country but it's also the level is, is, is very good and the games are fun so i can't recommend it enough the levels have gone up exponentially since i started following and you know real quick before we we, we finish up here Amos, you've been so gracious with your time um it needs to be said what, what has 2020 been like for you 2020 into 2021 you know with the bubble and with going to orlando and everything what, what's it been like you know for the mls well for me personally it's it's kind of been great in that I've got a eight-year-old, a five-year-old, a three-year-old daughter. Um, I have three daughters, and I've spent a lot more time with them than I normally did <laughs> since I got here. You know, I'm, uh, and luckily Delta kept my, uh, you know, my medallion status. My uh, so I'm okay with that. Um, you know, and then every other day for about four months, we got COVID tested. So I say the inside of my nostrils are not what they once were. Um, but, uh, but listen, it's been, it's been fun in that, um, you know, it's been a challenge. Every day is a challenge. Every day is new. Um, you got to sort of think on your feet and problem solve on your feet, um, as you try to figure this out. And it's been incredibly frustrating, like it has been for everybody, you know, and it's been remarkably sad to see, you know, so much, uh, (laughs) so much difficulty in our, in our country and in the world with, with with this virus i mean the amount of deaths and sicknesses our technical director has been on his back for the last eight days you know he got covid about 10 days you know got symptoms 10 days ago so you know just when you think it's you're sort of you're starting to get some breather it sort of hits you in a different way so um you know but but listen i i've you know i'm I'm fortunate i still have a job i'm still doing what i love i'm with my family everybody and my immediate family is healthy and and so we're thankful for that all right, well, uh, we really appreciate you spending some time. We're going to get you out of here. We have uh, something that we call the gauntlet, as Chris alluded to. Um, we're going to 
going to give you 10 questions, Amos, and just, uh, you know, rapid fire, kind of first thing that comes to mind. And uh, there's no wrong answers, just right answers from you. And uh, so you, uh, you ready for the gauntlet? Uh, let's do it. All right. I'll start off. Uh, relatively easy one. Favorite professor at Wesleyan? Gary Shaw. That was quick and immediate. He's ready to go. I like this. Who is the most influential person in your life? My father. What was the first job you had after graduating from Wesleyan? A camp counselor. Camp soccer coach. Okay. Okay, here's a challenging one. If you were forced... To cheer for one, would it be Amherst or Williams? Would be Babson. <laughs> That's a good answer. Good answer. Go Beavers. Good answer. When you were five years old, what did you want to be when you grew up? A marine biologist. Wow. All right. We're, see, Coach, we're dealing with like someone who's a little too intelligent for us right now. This isn't working for the gauntlet. He's too smart for us. What's the best piece of advice you've received in your life? Oh, goodness. Best piece of advice I've ever received in my life. Um, I don't know whether it was actually my dad who told me this. I don't know whether it's actually Mark Twain or just one of the thousand quotes attributed to Mark Twain, but it was better to keep one's mouth shut and appear stupid than to open one's mouth and remove all doubt. (laughs) In three words. Describe your Wesleyan experience. Um, I'm going to say one word, and it's going to be a compound word, which is made me. And the next compound word is the man. And the last compound word is I am. So made me the man I am. There you go. All right. I'll I'll tell you what. My man is reinventing the gauntlet. I'm loving it. Um, what do you miss most about Wesleyan? My friend. What do you think is the best Wesleyan highlight? Can be anything. Anything associated with, with the university. What do you think is the, the best Wesleyan highlight from the last 20 years? Wait. So the best Wesleyan highlight since I left or the best Wesleyan highlight when I was there? Uh, since you left. Last 20 years. Oh, it's got to be Lynn manuel man. Yep. Got to be Hamilton. Yep. Oh, man, that might I, be a... I, that my might, kids can't get enough of this. That might be that might be the great segue. Uh, who is the Wes alum you would most like to have dinner with? You know, there's... Uh, listen, this is a terrible answer, but I, I would find one of my friends who I haven't seen in a while, and that would be who I'd most want to have dinner with. Because I miss my guys. I don't see them that much anymore. Good answer. Good answer. Well, you survived the gauntlet. And, uh, wow, barely. Yes. Barely. Oh, you were awesome. I'm telling you. That, uh, that was one of the more impressive. We've done a few of these. And, and uh, you, you kind of – I'd say you cruised through. What do you think, Chris? I think that um, you, know, you took it to a different level, and now no one's going to be able to even come close. Honestly, you know, quick-witted. With, with with some talent mixed in and, and and really you know some subtle jabs, I liked it all. It was it was pretty top notch. <laughs> so 
so I can I can add to my Wesleyan uh, Hall of Fame that uh, reinvented the gauntlet. That's right. right. You guys put that on my plaque. That's right. Absolutely. Okay. We're gonna we're gonna add Going that right in. down there on the wall. On the wall. <laughs> Brilliant, guys. Well, listen, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I miss the place a lot, and this just reminded me of uh, why I do. So, um, be good and and stay in touch. And I, I uh, I'm available anytime. Okay. Really appreciate it. Thanks for spending time. Ladies and gentlemen, that is class okay. of 1993 Wesley and still all-time leading scorer. He is Amos McGee, and you have been listening to Chris and Coach Beyond the Box Score. For Amos, for Mike O'Brien, our producer and the coach, Mike Whalen, I'm Chris Grace. Until next time, so long, everybody.